Hello and welcome to The Word, our new occasional series which invites guests to talk about themselves in a way they've never done before. I'm Louisa Fox and in each edition of The Word I'll be peering into the inner lives of my guests through an unusual route, their favourite passages of the Bible. We'll be talking about why they chose them and what their selection says about them. Each of their choices will be read by the actor David Suchet, better known as TV's Poirot. We're part of things unseen, for people who think there's more to life than the material world. My guest today is Lord Chris Smith. Lord Smith served in Tony Blair's cabinet as Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, and after 20 years in Parliament, left the House of Commons in 2005 and was made a life peer the same year. Raised a Christian, Lord Smith is a member of the Church of Scotland. In 1984, he was the first MP to come out, revealing he was gay at a protest against Council's prohibitions on the promotion of homosexuality. Welcome, Lord Smith, and thank you for joining us. Let's go straight in and listen to your first choice, which comes from the Old Testament, Leviticus 20.13. Not a passage I would expect you to choose. If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman... Both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. That's an extremely interesting choice. I mean, it's a verse which, which can be and has been used by Christians to justify homophobia. Why did you select it? Well, that's precisely why I selected it. I'm gay. In strict terms, I have transgressed against this passage on many occasions. It seems to me absolutely critical to understand that this passage and many others in those parts of the Old Testament should not be regarded as literal instructions for modern-day Christians. They were written as social mores of the time, and they are entirely of their time. If you followed the strict instructions of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, you would never eat pork or bacon. Which would be um, very sad. You wouldn't eat any meat with blood in it. You wouldn't take out a mortgage. You wouldn't lend anyone any money. You wouldn't plant a fruit tree and eat any of the fruit for three years. You wouldn't have a tattoo. You wouldn't trim the corners of your beard. <laughs> and you would stone to death anyone caught blaspheming against the name of the Lord. These were things written for the time and yet that particular verse is quoted constantly by people who want to exclude gay people from consideration as full and valid members of a Christian society. I do not accept that exclusion. But how do you decide what's relevant to being a Christian and what isn't? Who gets to choose? Ultimately Christ gets to choose. And that's why my other two passages are both taken from the Gospels. And, of course, Christ, during the whole of his ministry, said absolutely not a single word about homosexuality or homosexual relations or about different sexual orientations. To me, Christ is an inclusive deity who became, of course, a person. He's not part of an exclusive 
religion. And the people who keep on quoting this verse from Leviticus and a similar verse from Deuteronomy are wanting to exclude people. And I don't think that that is what Christianity is all about. I mean, that's your perspective. And Christianity, like many other religions, contains lots of different views and some are more or less tolerant than others. When you encounter Christians who are prejudiced in some way, can you relate to them based on your shared faith? I can try and relate to them. I can disagree profoundly with them on their views on sexual orientation. If they want to hound me out of Christianity, then I find it very hard to talk with them about uh, what Christianity is all about. If they are prepared to agree to disagree, then perhaps we can have the start of a conversation. Have there been moments when you've faced prejudice which has caused you to doubt your faith? No. Never? Never. And I have to say, within uh, the community of the Church of Scotland, which I'm a member of, I have always found a warm and heartfelt welcome. So if not moments when you've faced prejudice which has caused you to doubt your faith, other moments which have caused you to doubt your faith, or trying moments... Oh, there are always moments when you think, oh, why is this happening to me? There are moments when you think, why is this happening to the world? There are moments when tragedies happen through no fault of any human being and you seriously question, why is the world made like this? And in those moments, what I find most powerful is the image of a suffering God who took on human suffering in order to become part of humanity. And that's a remarkable thing. If you'd been devising a logical religion, you would devise something where God is all-powerful and never vulnerable. But the central message at the heart of Christianity is that God made himself vulnerable for us. And that seems to me to be the key bit about fellow suffering, about sharing pain, about understanding that the world is a world of soul-making, as Keats put it, that uh, it's not all easy. And there are times when it's hard and difficult and tough and nasty and you have to try and cope with that and God helps you to do that. Let's listen to your second verse which is taken from Matthew's Gospel and begins with an observation on nature. Here's Matthew 6 verses 28 to 30. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Why is that verse important to you? It's important to me because it speaks to us about the glories of the natural world. I actually much prefer the King James Bible version of it, uh, which is uh, consider the lilies of the field, uh, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. It's a beautiful evocation 
of the delicacy, the intricacy and the beauty of the natural world that's all around us. And to me, throughout my life, I've found a huge amount of solace and spiritual refreshment in immersion in the natural world. It's something that I like to think as nowadays chairman of the Environment Agency, I am helping to put into practical reality. But to me, the natural world is part of the manifestation of uh, the beauty that God has given us. I know you have an excerpt from Wordsworth's Tintin Abbey, which relates to that which you'd like to read. I would indeed. I love the poetry of Wordsworth. Wordsworth, in many ways, was the very first environmentalist. He wrote about the power and the value of nature and the natural world. But he also talked about something else, which was the way in which we see something deeper than just the surface of the natural world. It leads us into an understanding of something spiritual. And there's this wonderful passage from uh, his lines written a few miles above Tintin Abbey, which is always known as Tintin Abbey. It was one of the lyrical ballads published right at the end of the 18th century. And he writes as follows. For I have learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still, sad music of humanity, nor harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man. And there what you have, the sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, that's looking into nature, looking through nature, seeing what nature is speaking to us about, not just as something that has a surface beauty, but something that has a deeper meaning too. Does art help to illuminate your understanding of a Bible? Oh, undoubtedly. I think throughout history, especially perhaps poetry, although you could say exactly the same about the visual arts and uh, the great history of Western painting. But for me, poetry, not just Wordsworth, but uh, there's a whole range of wonderful, reflective, deeply felt and thought religious poetry that I think help to illuminate Christian faith. And they complement what the Bible does for us. You're a member of the Christian socialist movement, I believe. What are the similarities or, or the relationship, maybe, between Christianity and socialism? For me, Christianity is a religion about sharing, about helping others, about not rejecting people, about dealing fairly with our common human brothers and sisters. And uh, that, to me, ultimately is what democratic socialism is all about. It sits at the core of my political and social beliefs as well as at the core of my religious beliefs. Now, I readily accept uh, that uh, not everyone who is a sincere and deeply believing 
passionate Christian is going to be a democratic socialist. Of course not. There will be many different interpretations. But for me, it's an important connection. I think that relates to your final choice, which will be familiar to many of our listeners. This is taken from Luke's Gospel, and it's 11, 2 to 4. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. When you hear those words, what do you feel? Well, for me, this has always been coloured by a profound passage that I read many, many years ago in the autobiography of Edwin Muir. Edwin Muir was a uh, Scottish poet, early part of the 20th century. And he wrote this rather remarkable passage in his autobiography where he talks about one evening when his wife was in hospital, he was on his own, and he was just getting undressed, about to get to bed. And he found himself reciting the Lord's Prayer and the thoughts that this suddenly generated in him. And he writes as follows. He says, I never realised before so clearly the primary importance of we and us in the prayer. It is collective for all societies, for all mankind as a great society. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, not my Father which art in heaven, not give us this day my daily bread, not forgive my debts, not lead me not into temptation. And this collective form of prayer was the form enjoined by Jesus. It would be called now, Edwin Muir writes, in the jargon of the fashionable revolutionaries, political. <laughs> The difference here between I and we, he says, is tremendous. There is no end to the conclusions that follow from it. In we, it is man or mankind or the community or all the communities that is speaking. It is human life and therefore society is the formal embodiment of human life. Now, ever since I read that, I've seen the Lord's Prayer in a different light. Because actually he's right. It is a prayer for all of us. It's not just a prayer about me and what I want from God and what I feel I need to give to God. It's a prayer about all of us. And that, for me, is a key principle of seeing I am my brother's keeper. No person is an island. We are all part of a society to which we have responsibilities, a society of fellow human beings, men and women who share our daily life, who share our world, and with whom we have to share in turn. And right at the heart of this fundamental prayer that is recited like a multiplication table by Christians the world over, right at the heart of this prayer is that fundamental perception that we are in this all together. Going back to your time in politics, front bench politics, you were known as a conscience of a cabinet. I think in your words you wanted to be constructive in your politics and not a ruthless backstabber. Was your faith a part of that? Did it influence the kind of amiable stance that you had? It's never been in my nature to try and do people down or uh, plot and backstab in the political arena. It 
that um, probably didn't do me any favours in terms of uh, political uh, promotion. I think you did quite well. Um, (laughs) I remember there was a wonderful passage in a biography of Asquith that I think Roy Jenkins wrote. And right at the end, he writes about Asquith. He says, what did he leave behind him? A memory which is a standing contradiction to those who wish to believe that only those with cold hearts and twisted tongues can succeed in politics. And ever since I read that, years and years and years ago as a student, I've had that as a little bit of a sort of template. Let's see if we can demonstrate that through a political life. And I think you did. Thank you, Lord Smith. You've been listening to Things Unseen, a platform for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.